0: This evening, I'll invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, and we'll be reading beginning at verse 26. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke, chapter 23, beginning, reading in verse 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun lights failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, Watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation. And the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb, how his body was laid, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Let's also turn then to the summary of God's word, as we find it in uh, Lord's Day sixteen of the Heidelberg Catechism which can be found on page 217 of the Forms and Prayers. Page 217 in your Forms and prayer. Beginning at question 40, the instructor asks, Why did Christ have to suffer death? Because God's justice and truth require it. Nothing else could pay for our sins except the death of the Son of God. Why was He buried? His burial testifies that He really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for sins, but only a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? By His power, our old man is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer rule us, but that instead we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Him. Flipping over to page 218. Why does the creed add He descended into hell? To assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from the hellish anguish and torment. The title of our sermon this evening is Jesus Loves Me, He Who Died. My most dear friends, in the simplest of nursery rhymes, contains the expression of one of the most profound truths. Jesus loves me. He who died. Heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin. Let this little child come in. Yes, Jesus loves me. I sing this hymn every night before bedtime with my kids. From the youngest members, our most juvenile in their learning and growing in faith, To even the strongest, smartest of peoples, this is the most profound of truths. What this little hymn teaches us is that the death of Christ is not to be simply thought about in a cold or analytical way. But the death of Christ is to be seen as the evidence of God's love towards His people. That Christ's death on the cross is personal. It's personal. And the Scriptures are full of God's love in the cross. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Romans 5.8 But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. The cross, the Bible says, is God's personal declaration to His people of His divine love. Herman Bavinck says this, the birth, the life, but also the suffering and death of Christ demonstrate and assure us of the love of God. And so when we, as we continue our study this evening of the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the Apostles' Creed, we must remember that we're in the subject concerning the humiliation of Christ. We have confessed with our mouths, that He is born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, but this evening, as we consider His humiliation, we turn to His death, His burial, and His descent into hell. But did you notice as you were reading the Heidelberg Catechism, I make emphasis of this on this again. The personal way the Catechism speaks of Christ's death the personal relationship between Jesus and His people. Notice how many times Lord's Day 16 uses the word our. He went to the cross to pay for our sins. Our old man is crucified with Him. Question 44 puts it in the first person singular. He has delivered me. Don't miss this, my dear friends. The catechism wants to comfort you with the death of Christ. How paradoxical. How can anyone's death be comforting? Especially a death that was so brutal, so humiliating, so vandalizing of the image of God in Jesus. I think the catechism is right. That the way we find comfort in the cross is when we know that Jesus died for us personally. Jesus died for us personally. And of course, this is the teaching of Scripture. For does the prophet Isaiah not say that our names are engraved upon the hands of God? The very same hands that would be nailed to the cross for you, for me, and for all who would ever believe. This is our theme in our time together this evening. I am assured of Jesus' love by His death for me. I am assured of Jesus' love by His death for me. What we want to see in our time together is three points. That Jesus died to satisfy God's justice. That Jesus died to pay the debt of sins. And that Jesus died to remove hell's anguish. And all of these things assure us of Jesus' love. Let's look at our first point. That Jesus died to satisfy God's justice. This evening we come to the Gospel of Luke and we see that the loving God, the God whom the Scriptures say is love, has condemned His Son to death upon the cross. Even though many people today suggest that a loving God should ignore His justice and accept us as we are, We see that biblically, this is not the case. Instead, God in His Word reverses this idea and teaches the opposite. See, the Bible teaches that God's love doesn't rob Him of justice, but justice is what reveals God's love. Did you catch that this evening? God's love doesn't rob him of justice, but justice is what reveals his love. See, in Luke 23, Jesus we read in verse 25 was condemned by Pontius Pilate. He is now on the road to Golgotha. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that before he began his journey, he was first beaten by the Roman soldiers. They twisted a crown of thorns, and they placed it upon His head. And now we pick up in the Gospel of Luke, He is carrying His cross. We come to a curious case of women who are weeping as He is walking this road. He calls them, Luke calls them, verse 28, the daughters of Jerusalem, and it doesn't seem to be just a few people, but we're told in verse 27, verse 27, that a great multitude of people and of women are mourning and lamenting the sorry state of Jesus Christ. John MacArthur notes it would have been traditional in that time for women to mourn the death of somebody, especially if somebody was prominent like Jesus was. But what's curious about these women then is not that they're weeping, What's curious is Christ's response to their weeping, isn't it? They're lamenting. They're sad. They're watching Jesus carry His cross and their hearts are broken, but Jesus rebukes them. Verse 28, Do not weep for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, listen to this, blessed are the barren." and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed, which you remember, would have been considered a curse at that time to not have children. Then they began to say, then they will begin to say, He goes on, to the mountains fall on us, and to the hills cover us. Jesus says you're weeping for the wrong person. You shouldn't be weeping for Me. You should be weeping for yourself. You should be weeping for your children. You should be weeping for your grandchildren. Because God's justice, His judgment is coming for them. In fact, the Bible teaches that God's justice is coming for us all. Because we're all sinners. And God will bring judgment upon sinners. He will give sinners the just consequences of their sins. In fact, it's essential to His nature that justice be done. He will not suspend His justice in favor of His love. Because justice is essential to who God is. Listen to these words from Psalm 11. It says, Let him rain coals upon the wicked. Fire and sulfur in a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Listen to this. For the Lord is righteous. Just as He is love, He is just as righteous. Righteous. The God of love is also the God of righteousness. And listen, the psalmist goes on. He says, God loves righteousness. And the upright shall behold His face. Justice is essential to who God is. So let me put it as pointedly as I can this evening. As we consider the subject of God's justice. God hates sin. God hates those who commit sin. And so the Bible says God will punish sins because He is just. Now the catechism, if you look at question 40, doesn't just mention God's justice, but it also mentions His truth. Now I recognize this evening that there is a bit of an overlap between the ideas of both justice and truth. Joel Beakey describes God's truth this way. He says, God's truth means that He is real, solid, and unchanging rock. He doesn't change. The Catechism mentions both aspects of who God is, both His justice and His truth, because in other words, He will not change His verdict of justice because He likes someone. He will not change His verdict of justice because you're good looking. Or because you're successful in life. He does not grade on a curve. His standard is always The same. Now let's tie the two threads of his justice and his truth together on the road to Golgotha. He has told the daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me. Why? Because God's justice and his truth demand a sacrifice for sins. The penalty for sins must be paid. Ezekiel 18.20 The soul that sins shall die. And he illustrates this with a proverb in verse 31. He says, for if they do these things, referring to the cross he's carrying, when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? For those of you who grew up in a home that burned wood, You understand this analogy, don't you? We prefer to burn what is dry. Not what is green, wet, moist, right? Human beings who have sinned are the dry wood. Jesus Christ who is perfect is the green wood. And He goes to the furnace of God's wrath And He throws Himself into the furnace so that He might spare what is dry. He might spare what is ripe for punishment. That He might give those very women salvation. That is that Christ took the place of sinners. He took the place of Adam. He puts Himself where guilty human beings should be. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, He became sin. And so if it's true that Jesus takes your sin, then God's justice and His truth demand that Jesus die for your sins. For the soul who sins shall die. And that God doesn't even make an exception for His own beloved Son. Now, if you're an astute theologian, you might say, well, Pastor London, this is illogical. Why does God's justice and truth demand the blood of an innocent Person rather than the guilty. This seems to be the opposite of what justice and truth should desire, right? Wouldn't it make more sense if God's justice and His truth demands the death of all sinners? And listen to this the answer is yes. The death of all sinners would satisfy God's justice and His truth, but it wouldn't satisfy His love. God's justice and truth could be satisfied in the death of all sinners, but it would not satisfy His love. Yes, he goes to satisfy God's justice. Yes, he goes because God's truth demands it. But as Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan author, says, his heart was most set upon his love for his people. Christ voluntarily takes our guilt upon Himself. He stands before God as a sinner. God's justice and truth are satisfied when he is condemned, and our response is to be so great is God's love for us. So, congregation, notice these women. Jesus rebukes them because they are people who like Jesus. They're attracted to Jesus' teaching. There's something about him that's alluring, but they're not followers of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just want our emotions, he doesn't just want our money, he doesn't just want a part of us. He goes to the cross for all of us. But yet, you see his heart. He doesn't want our pity. He goes to the cross because He pities ruined and lost sinners like us. And my friends, don't let anyone ever tell you that a God of love is a God who will ignore His justice. No, it's God's justice that leads Him to His love for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. So then we've seen that Jesus died To satisfy God's justice. But Jesus also died to pay the debt for our sins. The Catechism is clear in question 42 that our death is not a payment for sins, but Jesus' death instead is what pays for our sins. Question 40. And this is well illustrated because in our scripture passage, Jesus is not the only one who dies. But we're told, beginning in verse 32, that there were two others, two criminals, who were led away with Him to be put to death. And it's clear that in these two men's death, even though they died the exact same death, they could not pay for a single sin with their blood. Only Jesus' death could atone for sins. Notice with me in Luke 23, the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Three of them are recorded in Luke chapter 23. And the first two very much speak of this truth that Jesus died to pay the debt of sins. Look at the first saying from the cross. It says when they arrived at the place called the skull, it says there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. We spoke about the crucifixion a few weeks ago, but we can never meditate too much on the cross. We should should be reminded that he would have been laid upon that beam with large nails that would be driven through his hands and his feet. While He was on that cross, He would have endured severe inflammation, swelling of wounds, torn tendons, muscle discomfort, thirst, which makes it all the more profound that in His agony, the first thing He says upon the cross is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is the centurion who just pounded the nails through His hands. And through His feet. Father, forgive them. For the Jews who just stood before Pontius Pilate, as he said, this man is innocent. Father, forgive them. Jesus prays for the very people who crucified Him. Do you realize how profound that is this evening? Think of all of the tragedies that have taken place in human history. All of the wickedness. All of the evil. Is this not the worst of them? Taking the perfect, innocent Son of God who came to the earth in love and nailing Him to a cross. It's the most wretched sin ever committed. But Jesus says it is not unpardonable. No, His first saying on the cross reveals to us the whole intent of why He is there in the first place. The reason He is on the cross is to purchase and procure for us the forgiveness of sins. As the Catechism says in question 40, He came to pay. For our sins. It's not all Jesus says on the cross. But the two criminals begin to speak. And we're told that the forgiveness that Jesus prayed for. Immediately is illustrated in one of the most precious stories of the Bible. This gruesome crucifixion took place between two other men. Who were told were criminals. Criminals. In Matthew's Gospel, we're told that as both men are crucified beside Jesus, both of them reviled Him. Both of them were hurling insults at Christ. But as Christ is praying, as Christ's blood is being shed, one of the, men's become, one of the men becomes silent and begins to pray himself. And look at what he goes through beginning in verse 40. He goes through every aspect of what we would call a credible profession of faith. Verse 40, we see he fears God. Do you not fear God? He says to the other man. Verse 41, he confesses his sins. He says, We are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Again, verse 41, he trusts in the righteousness of Christ. That man has done nothing wrong. In verse 42, he looks to Christ for salvation. Jesus, remember me and your kingdom. Here is Jesus' second word from the cross. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. One of the most wonderful promises of the Scriptures. And consider to whom it is given criminal. A criminal who doesn't have much of a life yet to live, does he? He's about to die. Someone who by all accounts is worthy of hell. And Christ here promises him salvation. Congregation, do you see the point of the cross? Jesus died to save sinners. To pay the debt for sinners. It doesn't matter what sins you struggle with. It doesn't matter how close you are to the gates of hell. It doesn't matter if you have nothing to offer Christ. The thief upon the cross shows us the way to heaven. Look to Jesus. And He would die there. One of the Gospels says the Romans came and they broke his legs. And you remember, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, that in the nailing of the palms, the hands to the cross, it wasn't the bloodshed and the pain which would take your life, but the angle of your arms and your chest, it would asphyxiate you. This dear brother would have been strangled to death, essentially. Upon that cross. But when he opened his eyes again, he wasn't on the cross. He wasn't in pain. He opened his eyes in the presence of his Savior. His death illustrates question 42 very well. We will still have to die not because we have to earn our salvation, not because death is some virtuous thing and is still called the last enemy in the Scriptures, but rather we should view our death, as Anthony Hukema points out, as God's final consummative act of sanctification. It is that great sanctifying moment when He takes us from this life to the next in glory. But until the Lord calls us home, we will still wrestle with the flesh. But the Catechism says the cross was given not only for the forgiveness of our sins, but there's a further benefit. And the further benefit is this. That by faith, You, spiritually, were nailed to the cross with Christ. You have been crucified. You have died on that cross. You were buried with Christ so that your old man, your flesh, you are no longer bound to. No longer bound to sin. No longer bound to this world or the devil. Paul says in Colossians 2, God has made us alive with Him. He forgave us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. But what He nailed to the cross was not some fake, imaginary record of debts. No, He put those debts on Christ and nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. That's how the debt was paid. Your sins, my sins, your sinful desires, Our sinful deeds were crucified with Christ. Now we'll notice in question 43 there, it doesn't use the past tense when considering the crucifixion of Christ, but it actually uses the present tense. The Christian is still called to fight against sin. The Christian is still called to be crucified every day. But Jesus is with us, His people as they struggle. We're called to rely on His power and His grace. To look to the cross. To kill the old man within us that still presently exists within us. This is the further benefit. That every day, as we struggle with sins, we can keep looking to the cross I struggled with sins again, Lord. Look to the cross. I keep falling into this habitual sin. Look to the cross. How do I deal with my wife or my children? Look to the cross. The further benefit is ours even today. We see the catechism moves on to the final aspect of Christ's humiliation which is His descent into hell. See this, my dear friends, that Jesus died to remove hell's anguish. We come in question 44 to that last part of Jesus' humiliation, His descent into hell. And the catechism here is actually so helpful because it defines and helps clarify what the Apostles' Creed is really talking about. We often think, of someone who after they die, going to heaven or hell. But yet, notice what the catechism says in question 44. It doesn't say that Christ went to hell after His death. and burial. It says hell for Christ preceded His death. That Jesus endured hellish anguish before He died. And we see that in His last saying upon the cross in Luke 23. He says in verse 44, or let's look at beginning in verse 44, Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Complete darkness enveloping the scene. Darkness elsewhere in the Scriptures is described as God arriving. Arriving. But not arriving in salvation, arriving in judgment, in vengeance, and fury. And we're told in Luke 23 that he poured out his wrath upon his son for three hours, that he bore in his own body our sins. For three hours. He who was who knew no sin was made to be sin. For three hours. He was made a curse for us. This was what He pleaded with God in the Garden of Gethsemane to remove. The wrath of God upon Him. And we are told, as He is there upon that cross, And as our sins were holy and finally put upon Christ, He cried out as we just sung a few moments ago, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? It is the only instance in the New Testament where Jesus ever refers to God as anything but His Father. Because God wasn't His Father. Just over in the temple, the priests would have been slaughtering their animals. When they would have heard a great ripping sound as the temple veil was torn in two top from bottom, God had ripped the curtain off the Holy of Holies because they didn't need the blood of lambs anymore. The atonement had been made. Jesus' final words on the cross with all this in mind is, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. He had paid the penalty for sins. Communion had been restored between Him and God. He paid it all and then Luke says, He breathed His last, and He died. Throughout His life, He wrestled with physical death. But we're told that especially on the cross, He dealt, was dealt our eternal death. That is, He endured hell on earth. On the cross. He did not have to descend to hell. God brought hell up to him. After he died, we are told that Joseph from Arimathea... Asked for his body, a good and righteous man who's looking for the kingdom of God. They took his body, and you see how many times Luke mentions that people saw his death. Verse forty-nine: those who had followed him from Galilee stood watching him die. Joseph asked the who was a member of the council. Uh, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. They placed it in a tomb and the women who had come with Him from Galilee followed. They saw the tomb and how His body was laid. All these people witnessing the death of Christ. Assure us, the catechism points out in question 41, He did really die. He really and surely died on the cross for us. And this is the mystery of salvation. The mystery of divine love. That we could never by our death have merited any eternal life. Not even a second of it. But we see what infinite divine love can achieve. Congregation, We don't need to understand every aspect of the atonement. But again, Bavink mentions we should gratefully rest in it. Glory in it. Rejoice in it. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. How do you know? The Bible tells me so. It's when He died on that cross. He did it for me. Amen. Let's pray. Merciful God, we do give You thanks for the life Of Christ, which assures us that He loves us. We've seen this in His incarnation. That He came to this world because He loves us. But as we turn and meditate upon His death, we learn all the more how deep, how rich, how wide His love is. That He didn't come to this earth just to be worshipped and glorified. But he came even knowing that the bitterness of the cross was before him. Yet he entrusted himself into the hands of God and tasted death for us. Father, we pray that you would stir our hearts this evening in the sight of the cross, that we would receive this evening its further benefit, that we would be overwhelmed with his love and satisfied in it, and that we might live our lives in service. And in worship of the Christ who gave it all for us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.